0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Test. To Keegan-Michael Key or Not-To-Key edition. It's Wednesday, August 9th, 2017. On today's show, the Public Theater's new production of Hamlet stars Oscar Isaac and Ke- Michael Key of our title. We were very, very lucky to go see it. We'll be discussing with uh, Isaac Butler. And then Friends from College is a new Netflix streamer. It stars, here he is again, Keegan-Michael Key, Fred Savage, Annie Paris among several others. It's an ensemble comedy about a group of old Harvard classmates hitting 40 And finally, we're joined by Washington Post reporter Dave Weigel to discuss his new book on Prague Rock. We've been waiting to do this one for a while. I am so psyched it's finally happening. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana.
3: Hey,
4: Steve.
0: All right, before we go any further, I've been waiting to share this with you. It's my stupid story of my night seeing Hamlet at The Public. I walked from 39th Street and... uh, ninth avenue down to the public theater about a two mile walk realized i was going to be a little bit late if i didn't hurry it was drippingly humid out i had to all but run all but sprint the last three or four blocks uh i go into the theater and i I just want it's like nixonian flap sweat and so simultaneously i'm thinking well the stranger's going to be sitting next to me you know, maybe if I just pre- press my arms to my side really tightly, like, and contain the, you know, the, the, the stink. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I couldn't believe how much I had sweated. And I walk in and I go to my seat. And in order to sit in my seat, I'm not the kind of person, believe me, who befriends the stranger sitting next to me ever. Uh, and <laughs> you don't <have> ne- say. <laughs> in, never, never done it in my life and never will. But I did have to say to this person you know, a version of excuse me in order to get to my seat. So instead of saying excuse me, I say, hi. And he looks up and it's Sam Waterston. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) The fucking DA himself. And I sit down. Chong, chong. And (laughs) I sit down and it's one of those, I don't know if this is like rooted in like, you know, physiological fact, but, you know, sometimes after you've worked up a big sweat, and you sit down and your body starts to settle. It like opens all of your sweat glands. It says, let's leave nothing in the tank here. Like we don't need to reserve anything more. And I swear to God, it was like I was underneath an exposed piece of pipe in my basement and it was like dripping. It wasn't just that there were rivulets or streams of sweat. There were actual plunking, wet drops of sweat going from my hair, the the base of my hairline, onto my neck. And I'm just absolutely, and I'm like, I'm sitting next to fucking Sam Water. Like, I've never looked, anyway.
3: No, I love that story because I feel like the public is like the great off-Broadway theater institution in New York, and you always see some New York theater actor type there and or Law & Order actor type, same thing. But my my experience like that was that I went to see Hamilton there my husband was sneaking into the row ahead of me and then he like stopped and ushered me ahead of him in front of all these other people. And I was like, what are you doing? This seems so awkward. And then I saw that he had done that because the person on the far side of our pair of seats was Victor Garber, who is a Mm. renowned and wonderful theater actor, but also more pertinent to my interest, played the dad on alias the, the spy show with Jennifer Garner. Um, and he was the most effusive, uh, audience member I've ever had the privilege of sitting next to, like at every pause between every verse, he was like verklempt with emotion at the excellence of Hamilton and was like, ah, ah, and was like, bravo, That is and just so clapping funny. the whole time. Like he was exuding ex- ex- fandom.
0: That's exactly what Sam Waterston did. He was, he, but he did it in this perfectly sort of self-contained way. So it wasn't, he wasn't like, you know, kind of like, you know, generosity signaling, you know, a- actorly empathy signaling to anybody, but he made these little vocal noises, like, oh, oh like appreciative vocal noises, that distracted, like, not one whit from what was going on on stage, <laughs> and let, y- let, and yet let you know that this himself master of the craft. It was wonderful. He was the perfect, perfect seatmate, and he went home with a bucket full of uh, vicarious <laughs> ooze. <laughs> <laughs> on his left pant leg. <laughs> so you and Sam so Waterston kind of did meet proposal. in a way. He
4: he bears your DNA on on his body. <laughs>
0: he, he does. If someone asked him on the way home, I would be the principal <laughs> red herring suspect in the first half hour of the Law and Order about the actor on a Law and Order TV That was, was a weird TV feverish show.
3: guy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that open meet-cute, like, it's the theater, you see, you know, you see the actors on the stage, like, it's a classic New York scene, <laughs> and then there's just, like, a, a like just suspicious guy, just a super fishy guy <laughs> next to our protagonist. Uh, uh, yeah, All right. well,
0: now that we're warmed up, <laughs> Hamlet is the most familiar work in the Western literary canon, yet it's the obligation of every young or youngish actor to try to make it new. Uh, the latest of the challenge is Oscar Isaac, who is plausibly inheriting the mantle of his generation's greatest actor from the dearly missed Philip Seymour Hoffman. He plays the tormented and self-tormenting Dane in the new production at the Public Theater, which is directed by Sam Gold. We're joined by Isaac Butler, Slate contributor. Isaac, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Isaac, I mean, I you know, the commanding reason to go see this has to be uh, Oscar Isaac, who, as I said, you know, he's inheriting this mantle of the greatest actor of his generation. Isaac, am I right in thinking this is not a small deal to have Oscar Isaac play this, uh, play this part? And also talk a little bit about who Sam Gold is and maybe what his history with the public is and what he brought to this production.
2: Uh, sure, absolutely. So, first of all, in terms of Oscar Isaac's career, you know, he... Uh, right out of Juilliard, he's in Shakespeare in the Park, right? And then, you know, eventually he starts having this, you know, really impressive movie career. He does Inside Lewin Davis, one of the most amazing film performances I've seen in, in recent memory. And then he is, uh, you know, one of the leads in the new Star Wars franchise, and then you know, you, you could read this as kind of announcing his arrival to that upper, you know, echelon of the field by choosing to do Hamlet. One of the challenges with doing a play uh, as familiar to its audience as Hamlet, and really I, I don't think any play is more familiar to its audience, is how do you make the audience uh, hear it or experience it in a fresh way? Or if you're not going to do that, how do you instead comment on sort of Hamlet itself? Right. Those are sort of the two approaches that you can do. And I think Gold is actually doing a little bit of both of those things. So Sam Gold, um, there was recently a New York Times Magazine profile of him uh, rose to prominence as the director of uh, Annie Baker's early work. And then he went on from there to direct the musical Fun Home. And then this year, on top of doing uh, Doll's House 2 on Broadway, he has directed three major classics productions. Othello with Daniel Craig and David Oyelowo at New York Theater Workshop, The Glass Menagerie with Sally Field on Broadway, and now this Hamlet, which uh, has Oscar Isaac as Hamlet and uh, Keegan Michael Key as Horatio, and and a bunch of other really great actors in it.
0: Um, I'm gonna um, uh, I'm gonna hazard as someone who doesn't have exhausted uh, exhaustive knowledge of this, but that uh, Oscar Isaac was a tr- tremendous Hamlet that people may be talking about for decades to come, and that this was a, a quite original, notably original staging. Am I correct in those uh, judgments? Um,
2: I mean. I thought that Oscar Isaac was a very good Hamlet. I think he's a great actor. I completely agree with you that he is probably inheriting that title, uh, the, the, the greatest of his, at least male actor of his generation, from Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, I thought he was a very good Hamlet. I actually think the really brilliant performance in uh, this production was the uh, journeyman stage actor Peter Friedman who is playing Polonius and one of the gravediggers.
4: Yeah, Polonius really stole every scene he was in. We compared him afterwards. And me and my partner saw the show together. We compared him to a, kind of an Alan Arkin type. He's sort of like a, I don't know, a crabby Jewish Polonius. And uh, and he yeah. does that incredibly well. And he has this way of speaking the lines. Polonius speaks in prose, I think, more often than some of the other characters. So maybe this makes it easier. But he speaks the lines mm-hmm. so offhandedly. And they don't. They just sort of don't sound like they could possibly be 400 years right. old. Right. So
0: wait, before we go further, let's spark note this a little bit for um, some of our listeners who haven't read it re- recently, but Polonius is the father of Ophelia and Laertes and an advisor to Hamlet's uh, stepfather, the king. And Polonius is, if if nothing else, he's probably most famous for giving this long sententious uh, 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 speech filled with um, you know kind of uh, platitudinous advice to Laertes that ends with, right. uh, to thine own self be true. And what I loved about that, uh, Isaac, was He's giving it, and he's playing him as a, I mean, Polonius is such a mixed figure. He can be played as a complete fool. He can be played as a fool who occasionally says something wise almost by accident. In that speech, what I loved about it is he's being sententious and long-winded in a very funny way, and then he places the palm of his hand on the cheek of Laertes, and he says with an immense amount of tenderness and sincerity, says, you know, this above all else, to thine own self be true. And uh, I thought that was electric.
2: I think what Friedman does that's so great, and I should say that, you know, uh, Peter Friedman's been delivering home run performances and plays, you know, since I was in short pants, uh, and is a versatile, incredible character actor. And what he does really well with that Polonius is uh, Polonius doesn't know that he thinks he's an incredibly wise man giving this tender advice. Contextually, he is because he's constantly wrong about what Hamlet is doing and why. And so I thought, you know, for him to not go for the easy laughs in that scene was a really great choice. You never get the feeling that Friedman is laughing at the character, which, for example, when I did it in college and I was Polonius, you know, it's an easy way to get approval from the audience to kind of wink and be in on the joke of polonius
0: mm-hmm. uh, before we go any further most of the people listening to the segment will not have a chance to see the show we we felt compelled to talk about it because it's hamlet uh and because it's o- oscar isaac talk a little bit about the production what look and f- what looked and felt different about this one
2: sure so um Sam Gold, this is actually Sam Gold, director Sam Gold's second major production of a Shakespeare play this year. His other one was Othello. And they share certain similar approaches. So one of the things is is that it is less a conceptual set. You know, we're never in a throne room. A lot of productions of Shakespeare will either use, you know, very literal locations. We're in a throne room, we're in a courtyard, et cetera, Or they kind of have some... Uh, concept of where it's set, like, you know, we're doing Hamlet on Mars or, you know, something like that, um, what both of uh, Gold's productions of Shakespeare this year have done instead is kind of create an environment that the play takes place in. So in Othello, it was this kind of wood-paneled barracks. And here it's a kind of red-carpeted... A a friend of mine jokingly referred to it as a rec room, but, you know, it's this sort of red-carpeted three-quarter thrust space. The actors are on stage the entire time. There's very seldomly any attempt made to really let us know where we are. And then on top of that, there's lots of doubling. The actors are all playing multiple roles. Even um uh Oscar Isaac plays one of the the players in the play within the play at one point. Uh and so uh and they're in very contemporary dress, you know, they're basically in jeans and T shirts most of the time. And um they have cut out of the play everything having to do with uh Fortinbras invasion of Denmark from Norway.
4: Right. So the final words of the play are actually mm-hmm. spoken by Horatio rather than Fortinbras. It's, it's very strange not to have that somebody coming to the rescue, essentially, at the end of yeah. the play.
2: Yeah, it's a very hermetically sealed world, the hamlet that, that Gold has created, right? There's not the sort of sense of exterior politics or exterior religion. It really is all about this room and these actors, as much as the characters kind of trapped together in this experience.
4: And it's a very small group of actors. I don't think we've stressed that. But I counted upon leaving. And I think basically there's there's nine people in the whole production. I mean, other than the the main characters that you think of with Hamlet, Claudius, Gertrude, Polonius, Hamlet, Horatio, there's just sort of two uh, extra folks who come in and do Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. They're very funny. And they do Bernardo and Marcellus, the two guys keeping watch at the beginning. But other than that, there's there's no one around. So there's a very, very intimate feeling to the production.
3: The other effect, I think, of the staging and this seemed conscious to me that I'd be curious to hear you comment on, Isaac, is that red carpeted rec room feel, kind of church basement vibe. What it actually does is extend the decor of the theater itself, which has sort of got these kind of red carpeted stadium seats. And so you sort of feel like you're at a rehearsal or you feel like... You feel like the place that it's happening is a theater, right? You feel like they're putting on a show. And that feels almost more like what the set is meant to evoke than anything else
2: yeah and that is definitely a hallmark of gold's classics productions that they feel like they're essentially set in a rehearsal room um and in fact his uh glass menagerie, which was on Broadway recently had no basically no set at all um and really felt like a rehearsal room that's uh a very appropriate choice for Hamlet because Hamlet is constantly the character and the play they're both constantly making references to the architecture of the globe theater itself, when that it is in the globe. And many of the scenes are actually stageable pretty clearly if you just read the text as to where people are supposed to be. And it's a play that is, of course, obsessed with the idea of performance.
0: Isaac, let's focus in for a second um, on the performance of Keegan-Michael Key as Horatio. Uh, You know, he's a comic actor, you know, known, known to most people, But from Key and Peel, what did you make of his performance? And then let's move on and talk a little bit more about Oscar Isaac, what you liked and didn't like about his choices. But first, Key, what do you what do you think of him in this role?
2: Well, it was nice to see a Horatio who actually had personality. I mean, the, the problem with the character of Horatio tends to be that Horatio's just kind of standing there watching everything, and then Hamlet gives this whole speech about what a great friend he is, but he kind of doesn't, you know, he's just kind of there. And it was nice to see uh, Horatio where you sort of understood their friendship. Like, maybe they're the Wittenberg-class clowns, you know what I mean? Um, uh, and that's what their bond is about, is that they can sort of mock authority and, and see through it. I will say that the personality he is given is sort of what you would expect Keegan-Michael Key to do. You know what I mean? It's very much in line with his performances in Key and Peele. Um, But I also thought, you know, Hamlet is a long play and it's got a lot of humor in it that people often miss. And uh, I didn't mind that I was uh, laughing quite a bit while watching.
4: I I could just add that this was Unexpectedly hilarious, like rolling in the aisles funny production of Hamlet, which doesn't mean that it sacrificed any of the tragedy or seriousness of the big speeches or the beauty of the language. And that was just something that Sam Gold and all the cast I thought did incredibly well was bring out the comedy while not turning this into sort of hardy har Hamlet. And one example of that having to do with Key is that he plays, I guess Gonzago is his name, the king in the play within a play, right? The king who is, who's, has poison put in his ear in the, in the player's yep. play. And, uh, and he does, I mean, it's the oldest trick in the book, but he does an extended comic death that won't end. And it is so incredibly funny. The audience mm-hmm. was just mm-hmm. dying. Just when you finally think he's yeah. had his last spasm, you know, one little finger will reach out and it'll all start over again. And it was awesome.
3: Yeah, um, to me, I mean, I, we've talked about this. We've actually, this is the second time we've talked with you, Isaac, about Hamlet on this show because we talked about the great piece you wrote for Slate about Fat Hamlet, and uh, Oscar Isaac does not play Fat Hamlet in this play. He plays Funny Naked Hamlet, um, to which, by which I refer to his uh, decision to go pantsless for vast uh, chunks of the first and second. It's act.
4: basically how he shows he's mad, right? The the way that he pretends to be mad or that signified in the play is that Oscar Isaac takes off his pants, which becomes this sort of <laughs> running joke.
3: You just get to watch a lot of Oscar Isaac's tush the whole time. But anyway, the the I think when we spoke about Hamlet before, I expressed m- that it's n- never been my favorite Shakespeare play because Hamlet is so mopey and, you know, <laughs> oh the I've said this to you before,
0: Steve. I know, but it's
3: just so you. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Well, I will just say that this performance for me created this through line for Hamlet's emotions that made it both sadder and funnier at the same time. Like it it the grief really felt like grief to me and not like indecision. Uh, and the his shifting modes of being felt like the kind of the craziness of grief the shift the shiftiness of grief uh and I, I don't know it, 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 it the way that he rendered the, the role uh was was just remarkable to see
4: I mean I, I couldn't imagine a better that's it's, it's certainly the best live Hamlet I've ever seen I mean I haven't sort of globally responded to this yet maybe none of us have but I have to say that I walked out of it. Utterly thrilled and with my mind racing and thinking, thinking, feeling the way that you feel when you walk out of a great piece of art. I think it's a, an incredible piece of theater, and if anybody has a chance to go see it, they should do so.
0: Yeah, I want to. I'm so glad you said that, Dana. I feel the same way. My my kind of global response to it was to have been completely floored, um, exhilarated uh, by the whole production, including Isaac, but not limited to him um, at all. All right. Well, Isaac Butler, I should say he's a writer and theater director, a frequent contributor to Slate, a friend of the program, and he's the co-author of The Forthcoming, The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America. He co-authored that with Slate's own Dan Coyce.
2: Thank you guys for having me.
0: All right. Well, before we go any further, I think we have some business to take care of. Um, Dana, what, what do we have?
4: Steve, we have a few things. First of all, a quick reminder about our live show coming up in Toronto, in Ontario, Canada, in collaboration with the Toronto Public Library and the Toronto International Film Festival. It's going to be during the festival on September 13th at 7 p.m. at the Toronto Reference Library. And as we have talked about on earlier shows, the tickets for this are free. They'll become available at 9 a.m. on August 23rd. So put a note in your calendar for August 23rd because these tickets are going to go fast. We're also doing a special cocktail party afterwards at a nearby location. And you can check Slate.com Live for more details and get tickets for the after party, which also guarantee admission to the show. We've already sold out over 60 percent of these after party tickets. So if you're interested in doing that, grab a ticket before it sells out at Slate.com live. And our Slate podcast pick this week is Hit Parade, hosted by our beloved Chris Melanfi, who was recently here to do the summer strut with us. Uh, the newest episode of his show is about the history of the charity mega-single, which we talked about, I believe, a little bit in our, our strut segment. So if you want to hear more from Chris about how We Are the World and other charity mega-singles came to be, and trust me, you do, check out Hit Parade on the Culture Gab Fest feed. And in today's Slot Plus segment, we will be talking about Julia's love for the online game of Boggle, which has boggled Stevens in my minds enough that we want to interview her about it. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, free for 90 days if you download our new iOS app at slate.com app and get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months for free. It's by far the easiest way to get these bonus segments and ad-free podcasts. So if you're interested in trying Slate Plus, free for 90 days, go to slate.com app. Lastly, for business, we wanted to thank everyone, again, who left reviews for us on iTunes. We really appreciate it, and we are done asking you guys this for a long while, but that really does help more people to discover the show. And as promised, we're going to read one of our favorite and most helpful reviews that you guys posted over the last couple weeks. This is from someone identifying him or herself as Fine Art Daily, and uh, excuse the the bragginess, humble brag, but I'm going to read their very sweet compliment. Dana, Julia, and Stephen are three people I would take to the desert island. The conversation would be lively, the opinions many and varied, and their combined intellect would see us through to our rescue. Thank heavens for the folks who read books, consume popular culture, embrace technology, and can speak in full sentences. They have expanded my cultural horizons, and for this I am grateful. Keep it up, folks. And thanks for the slot Plus, insert French accent, s'il vous plaît, segments. Delightful.
0: Friends from college stars an ensemble cast. I'll name all of them. Keegan-Michael Key, Fred Savage, Annie Paris, Nate Faxon, J. So Park and Kobe Smulders. They are six friends from Harvard who are now approaching middle age. They are, for the most part, first world problems made flesh as they struggle to publish their novels or tolerate their hedge fund bosses. Sounds like a recipe for nothing but a hate watch or maybe a self-hate watch. And from the evidence of my Twitter feed, a lot of people are self-hate watching this. That's uh, the spirit in which I watched it. Um. Anyway, um, is this satire, self-satire, meta-self-satire? How many times do you need to square a cubit before you can just like it for what it is? Oh, we have so much to discuss here, but first, let's listen to a clip.
2: Young adult. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, don't, I don't think that's for me. I don't know. I do know
0: because I write literary fiction for adults. Yes, I know, and you've won a whole bunch of awards for it. you won the Penn Hemingway and the Pushcart Prize. Yes, I did. you won a ton of shit no one's ever heard of. Well, not no one. Not, right. not Look, no one. I know this is hard to hear, but Ethan, the great American novel is now the massive international young adult series with film rights and merchandising. That's the future. Why are you being so agent-y right now? Look, your novels all have teenage protagonists anyway, right, so you just have to choose like a slightly more exciting genre-y way in, okay? Max, YA is destructive, do you understand? It's all about adults who are
2: refusing to grow up and instead they read books that are for kids. It prevents you from moving forward and living your life and it is destroying our culture. That's a yes. Yes, fuck you, it's a yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Julia, uh, I kind of feel like you made me watch this.
4: I did. Yeah, she explicitly said you must watch this show because I can't stop watching it, even though it fills me with... Tell us what it fills you with, Julia.
3: (laughs) I... This show was like watching a train wreck, but I couldn't stop. Uh, I... It was so mesmerizingly, confusingly bad. Uh, I couldn't figure out, like, each scene has a different comedic tone. Each actor seems to be acting in a slightly different version of the show. Uh, they're all loathsome. And yet, I kept watching it, and in fact, watched it so readily that after I successfully convinced you guys to watch it to help me figure out how I actually felt about it, I was like, okay, Friday night, I'm gonna, you know, eat my dinner and watch a few episodes of this show. I realized I'd watched the whole thing. Like I'd I've used up all the episodes. There were none left. But I was like ready to watch more. And there's been a lot of hate for this show among critics and on Twitter. And then also some uh stubborn defenses. And I will also say that when I tweeted about the show and how confused I was by it and how I felt like I just wanted to watch the version of the show that Kobe Smulders was in. Um I got like more interactions on that tweet than on a lot of tweets. Like, people are watching, people are interacting with this thing out there in the world. Yeah. And so I needed, sure are. I basically called in my favor and need you, Ace critics, to help me figure out what the hell is going on in this show. <laughs>
4: I mean, I have to say, for my part, I felt no desire to keep hate-watching. I've seen three episodes. I'm glad I saw three, because I started to get a sense of how the character arcs would develop, et cetera. But I don't feel that addictive energy vis-a-vis this show. Do you, Steven?
0: I, well, I watched the whole thing.
4: <laughs> well, that answers My question. <laughs> my, my, <laughs> <laughs>
0: my name is Stephen Metcalf and I watched all seven or eight eight episodes of friends from uh, college I mean here's let, right. me, let me offer let me offer a defense of my own epic self-hate uh, epic act of self-hate would first of all they are all very 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 good performers very funny performers and and it's sort of like it's like you know one of those College, you know, it's like one of those basketball teams where you just roll a basketball out on the court and then you pay whatever amount of money to watch them just shoot layups. I mean, but
4: what if the basketball's deflated, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was my feeling. I couldn't. I couldn't give up hope that it would be good because the cast is so good, and that in fact was what was what kept it going. In particular, for me, it mm-hmm. was King and Michael Key and Fred Savage. I thought yes, they were both great. Exactly. The women also the, the two the two sort of rival women, Kobe Smulders and Annie Paris, are both great. But what does it mean to be great when the script is flat? I mean, I that's what I mean disagree. about the deflated basketball.
0: I, no, I don't disagree. Okay, so just a couple things about what I genuinely loved about it is like you know Key clearly is like busting out as an actor he's you know he's mesmerizing in this he was terrific in hamlet as we said um fred savage it's so awesome to see this midlife renaissance of his you know he could have been that guy on wonder years forever he's so talented he's good in every scene he's very funny um you know, it's like it's it's like watching world class l- lemonade makers with a, you know, stinky bucket of lemons. I mean, it just it's. But that it's, makes
4: me sad. Like Key is so vastly yeah, overqualified oh. for his part. I mean, when you see him, he's a great physical comedian. Right. As we talked about in Hamlet and as we've seen all over the place and Key and Peel, et cetera. Amazing physical comedian. He gets very little chance to do slapstick in the show. And when he does for some of the very few times that you laugh out loud, I just feel like Nicholas Stoller, the creator of the show, co-creator, doesn't understand what a treasure he has in his mm-hmm. on his hands, not just with, right. with Key, but with all these I don't performances. Know. I, look, so
0: so. we're all onto the, I, sorry, just to finish my, now I'm going to repeal all of my defense of it. I mean, so we're all, I think, onto the same vein here, which is that um, it, the, the writing just isn't good or consistent enough. That that the, the show is about one thing preeminently, right? The one excusable thing about the show is that it's sort of about the annoyance that it produces in the viewer, it's about these six people who cannot, at least when they're together, they recreate all of the energy and joy of discovering one another at Harvard twenty years before, to the absolute destruction of every other life relationship they have. Like the the, the energetic force that they generate internally as a group of six, you know, the friend group as they call it, you know, has this you That's know the massive most charming
3: thing about the show that they can't. Yes, come up I agree. Their name.
0: Right. It has this like massive negative externality, and the show's conscious of that and about that. Um, uh, the problem is, you know, Julia, is that they're approaching middle age and none of all of their life problems feel fake, faked, contrived, and they don't otherwise, other than in this rapport, they don't otherwise feel like real people with adult issues.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the the most perceptive review I read of the show, or at least the one that challenged my assumptions the most, was one by Alan Sepinwall at Uproxx now, who argued that everything off-putting about the show is completely intentional, that it is like a, a um, self-conscious anti-nostalgia screed, that it's about how people ruin their lives when they are you know, man children and women children and can't grow up and accept the consequences of being an adult. And so you end up hanging out with these adults who keep making really stupid decisions and seem uh, idiotic. And, you know, Nick Stoller has made a bunch of movies that are pretty funny in a kind of
4: exaggerated comic tone. Yeah, he made Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is a movie I love and often return to. I mean, I think Nicholas Stoller's is a great choice to make a show like this. And I'm not quite sure where the this tone of insularity and claustrophobia comes from. Maybe that he co-wrote it with his wife, who did, was his college friend from Harvard, and that it's too close to their story and it's their in-jokes. I'm not quite sure, but it doesn't seem to be re- ever reaching for larger themes to me. Well, and I think I disagree with you guys about which performances
3: I found moving. Like, I think I found Key's performance in this not not successful because it feels like he is in the antic. It, Stoller also directed both versions of both of the Neighbors movies, which I think we really loved the first one and liked the second one less, but have a similar exaggerated antic comedy to them. And I felt like Key was in that exaggerated antic version of the movie where, you know, there's like dead pets and broken windows and um, kind of scampering around. Uh, And I just like wanted to watch the earnest soap about 30-somethings. Basically, I feel like this is 30-something for my generation. And it's like trying to be too cool to actually just be a soap opera about 30-somethings. And I wish it just had the courage of its convictions and was a soap opera about 30-somethings. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's the soapiness that kept me watching and all of the, like, oh, aren't Friends horrible? Aren't these, you know, like the actual problems facing 30-somethings I know mostly are not that they can't stop acting like children. I'll we'll also say the other thing that that, you know, forced my self-honesty is that this mu- this thing is filled with the music of my youth. Like, if The Big Chill is the musically nostalgic uh, 30-somethings reminiscing and fearing death together, you know, totem of our culture, like, every song I loved that was on a mixtape was used as a, like, outro to credits in this, and it just made me cry.
4: <laughs> <Sad>. <laughs> because you realize that you are Nat Fax yeah. and Coby Smulders and...
3: I'm, I'm a cliche.
4: The music yes. is great, I have to say. What all is in there, there's Pavement, there's Corner Shop, there's Liz Fair. The music is super well chosen. And I like that the there's breeders, no comment. Like, yeah. they're not listening to the music in the story. So the presence of the music is, in essence, a commentary on their mm-hmm. stage of Arrested Development. Mm-hmm. I will say,
3: I, I feel that I should acknowledge that after sharing in various forums that I was hate-watching this show, our dear colleague Alison Benedict... Uh, DM'd me and was like, it's just good. You just like it. Like you watch the whole thing. You're talking about it. (laughs) Like maybe it's just good. (laughs) And I think that's like a fair. I mean, I I don't I don't actually think it's good, but I like want there to be a second season. And I think I have to be honest with myself (laughs) and our audience about that.
4: Is there any word on whether it will be picked up for another season?
3: I mean, Netflix is such a mysterious master. Who knows?
0: I think that there's a there's a fundamental error at the heart of this TV show, which is that it thinks it's about how a, you know, how a codependency can evolve, a nostalgic codependency can evolve between this group of six friends. And it forms this kind of mirror in which they're always, you know, the collective mirror in which they're always great. They're always their younger selves. They're always fun to be around while everything crumbles around it. I think that's the wrong mirror. I think inadvertently the show is about how a certain style of Hollywood writing is just self-fucking referential. I mean, it, you know, the mirror really is the big chill, uh, you know, 30 something and girls. And it, it seems more extracted from that, um, than it does from anybody's real life. And, and, and real life is alluded to in touchstones, like the Pushcart Prize or marital infidelity, whereas it doesn't seem to be drawing on anyone's actual experience of real life at all. And the closest that could come to being satirical is just sort of saying, well, that's kind of how people construct selves now, like performative selves in a way. And it's how we perform for one another. And so maybe at that level, it sort of worked as a satire, and maybe that's why I watched it till the end. I don't know. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Okay. So in sum, the show is awesome and we loved it. It's called uh, (laughs) Friends from College. It's streaming on Netflix. Check it out and come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Oh, and one thing very quickly. uh, Dana, are you with me on this? Billy Eichner is very good in this.
4: Yes. And he's one of the very few who doesn't. I mean, of all things, right? He's the most restrained performer on this entire show. So yay, Billy Eichner.
0: Dave Weigel is a national political correspondent for the Washington Post. He is a very, very good friend of Slate Magazine and an alumnus uh, and a friend of this program. He has written The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prog Rock, a book about progressive rock and roll, prog rock. Uh, Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's really good to be on again.
3: So Dave, this this book had its origin in a, in a big project that you did for Slate when you were a political correspondent for us here, um, where you spent a month researching and learning about the history of prog rock and essentially mounted a defense of prog rock, a much maligned uh, type of music. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about, like, can you play for us a song or conjure the song that sparked your interest in this form of music?
1: I'd probably start with roundabout by yes, which is extremely obvious. I can't pretend that I, I came in through the most uh, the coolest and most obscure back I don't door of Mesa rock.
3: An arcane doorway <laughs> to an arcane form of music.
4: <laughs> you think I guess you're allowed you don't, to go through no. the front door. <laughs>
1: When I was 14 or 15 and into heavy metal and found a rock critic, Mark Prindle, online back when everyone was just updating their websites with HTML, who loved metal but also loved this. And I found a tape of uh, Yes is Fragile for, I think, $3.77 at like a cutout bin. And uh, so Roundabout was what kicks out the album. And that was a lot of what makes the music fun and worthwhile is in that song, even though it's, it's a hit that doesn't get as, into as many weird places as some of the other music.
0: You say something quite interesting um, that uh, I wonder may, maybe if they could provide a starting point for us which is that up until about 1968 British and American rock music were going kind of in the same direction they were they were you could argue that they were that they were you know that that rock and roll was anglo-american phenomenon and in 68 they split and they go in different directions why is that maybe one way to get into what made prog rock distinctive
1: well, it's because of something that a lot of critics have, have pointed out in their reviews of the book, and I don't mind them pointing it out, which is that it, Britain did not have a tradition of black American music for reasons I probably don't need to go into. They're pretty obvious. And you had a lot of musicians exploring the influences that they grew up with insofar as they went to church, they heard Anglican choral music, they heard a lot of classical music, The the, the influences they got growing up in like post World War II Britain were were different uh, than the influence that Americans were drawing from. So there's this break where when bands get extremely ambitious, uh, there's there's this the same sort of kind of acid test scene you see in San Francisco for the Grateful Dead, similar things happening in London and Europe, but the direction they're taking it in is much more grandiose and much more much more structured. I mean, these don't become jam bands, they become sit for twenty minutes and explore this very put together sonic journey that these bands have put together. Now, they, they get there uh, eventually. There are some classic burnout jam sessions at <laughs> these like all, all night raves, but the, the, they, they go in a much less folky direction than than American psychedelic music and a much more layered and I could say pretentious because I've, I've said so much, I don't really <laughs> I don't really find it pejorative anymore, uh, a, a kind of big headed, uh, expansive kind of music.
0: Okay. So, for those of our listeners who maybe aren't overly familiar with this kind of music, name some of the big uh, big acts of British prog rock.
1: Well, you could go with Yes and Genesis, although Yes and Genesis are bands that both got very poppy in the 80s. If you, you, you kind of start in the 70s, that's the sound. Uh, King Crimson, who again morph very much between album to album, one of the, one of the main bands, uh, Jethro Tull, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, who are referenced in the title of the book, uh, are are kind of the icons of the music as it has come down to us through critics, which is this music that was abolished by punk in 1977. I mean, ELP, a supergroup of three very talented people, who for one of their first albums rec- record an entire classical piece, for one of their later albums tour with a classical music orchestra until they run out of money. Uh they're they're kind of the mascots of progressive rock, and uh, as I've toured the book and talked about it, I found all these people who were secretly fans of them but didn't know how to express this because uh, it, it's a cul-de-sac. It's a form of music that went in this direction and then kind of petered out and they're revivalists, but it, it's, it wasn't as influential openly as a lot of other, even electronic music that was kind of coming up at the same time
4: some in one of the reviews of your book somebody pointed out and i like this this comparison that prog rock songs are sort of this or more like a movie right they're kind of a narrative journey that you go on as opposed to turning on the radio and hearing a 3 minute hooky pop song
1: yeah and if you see them live they don't deviate a ton from this maybe the guitar solos are going to be a little bit different but a song like roundabouts about 8 minutes long and you hear it live it's going to be 8 minutes long it begins with this slow build up slow and quiet buildup. Start starts with what you heard that, in, there, and then slows down again. There's there are scenes with again the one thing you hear is this fluttering keyboard and this Steve Howell classical harmonic guitar, and yeah, they take you to different places in in, in the song in a way that a lot of contemporary stuff. When people think of 70s rock, you know, it's big bludgeoning fog hat stuff uh, that starts and ends in the in kind of the same place, and and these these songs didn't. So that's that's why I got really interested in them.
4: Dave,
3: can you uh, further place the music in a little bit context around some of the other forms uh, that were popular at the time or or thereabouts, just so people have a sense of the arc here? So this was kind of at its peak before the rise of disco and punk and the rest, right?
1: This kicks off, you guys said it really well, it kicks off in the late 60s. It is a, I'd say our rock starts diverging into more psychedelia. So does theirs, but it is a much more structured kind of weirdness that they go into. And it's really 1969 through 74. These are gigantic bands uh, selling out festivals, selling out multiple nights at arenas. Uh, you know, yes, and ELP especially are some of the biggest bands on, on earth. And they still have a following today, but they're you know blow for blow with the Rolling Stones and being open, even a band like Gentle Giant, which is one of the more kind of Renaissance music forward bands in progressive rock. They're they're opening for black sabbath they're like not on the on on the same level as them but the music industry which is like this big important player in this music industry sees a lot of money in this sort of music uh, it, it is it is not it is not niche music yeah it, it's not as mainstream in a lot of construction as what's playing at the same time on rock radio but it's super popular as album rock that you you open it up and there is a Intricate art and intricate lyrical content. In the case of something like ELP's Tarkus, a whole uh, a mythology around a uh, a mythical creature they just made up, <laughs> that that kind of stuff was just super popular. And as I reported out and I talked to a lot of fans too because I'm 35 and I wasn't there for a lot of this, I think one thing that helps is just there were fewer distractions in the late 60s, 1970s. There was a lot to do but there wasn't the uh, – well, I could uh, – download all of this, or I, I could play, play anything I want, or I, I could watch any one of fifty sports sh- uh, live contests online. Um, no, you. There was just an, immersing yourself in a musical culture made a lot more sense then. It's a little bit more more of a uh, a break from society. Now it was pretty mainstream uh, in the period I'm writing about, so this was rewarded by that. And uh, so when it blew up in the late seventies, it did. I mean, I've had some smart critics argue with my me falling for this narrative. I, I think it, I, I do it because in all the research I did, it's just true that in the late 70s, music critics and music companies, just they're not selling as much and they abandon it and move on to punk and other forms of music. Uh, the crowds don't even shrink that much. It's just that the co- the industry actually is selling more disco than the, or sell, uh, more interested in selling disco than it is in a lot of this stuff. And uh, you know, how long should a genre last? 10 years seems pretty good. I don't argue in the book that it was unfairly ended before its time, just that it didn't get its its due in music history.
4: So, Dave, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because your book kicks off with this, is the sort of social shame uh, associated with still being a prog fan in this day and age. And the very first sentence of the introduction of your book begins, we are the most uncool people in Miami and we can hardly control our bliss. And you're describing this this cruise that you're about to go on with a bunch of, of diehard prog rock fans. Um, so I wanted you to talk about that and how that came out in your reporting and just, you know, in general, in, in the reception of the book and to what degree that drove your desire to make the book.
1: Yeah, I went on one of the three available progressive rock cruises that at that time there was Transatlantic, <laughs> there was the Moody Blues cruise, and there was this one. And I remember being uh, pitching this uh, as as something I could I could write about, and being very worried it was a cliche to go on a cruise and make fun of musicians. And it, it is a cliche, totally is. People have done this with like the the Weezer cruise and the what, whatever. That whatever kind of sub-fire festival on a boat people have managed to put together. And this one I just said, no, I'm going to take it seriously because everyone on this on everyone on this boat is passionate about this music that has been written off and they know that it has. And that, I think, makes everything, makes the community tighter. It almost reminds me when I, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, comic books like X-Men and stuff pre-movie or Tolkien pre, pre-movie, you, you wouldn't get beat up necessarily for talking about them, but the people who were interested in them were were, were fairly clickish, and that's fun. I mean, you overanalyze, you go down rabbit holes, and that's what I found with all the people on this cruise—a couple thousand people who, in general, were really good musicians. I think that that kept the the core of this of this music fandom really. Active and intense. I mean, it was not hard when I was researching the book. It was not hard to find people who had personal libraries of old magazines about it because they never got rid of them. And it was not hard to find fans who could talk about it and point you in a million
0: directions. Like the hard part, because the book was about a year late, the hard part was uh, (laughs) condensing that into one story. So, um, Dave, my overwhelming association with prog rock is with one band and really one album in particular. The band is King Crimson. And uh, in the court of Crimson King, which just seems to me the one inarguably and superbly great prog rock album. Uh, aren't they? They're they're a key part of the origin story of prog rock, aren't they?
1: Uh, they are. They come out of this not super successful band, Giles, Giles, and Fripp, that are psychedelic, don't really know where they're going. Uh, they add Greg Lake, who is most famous later on for being part of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Uh, they add this lyricist, Peter Sin- Sinfield, who writes these ex- searching, not just... Not just Uh, strange poetic lyrics and not just hard to hard to diagram lyrics, but lyrics that are so recognizable as something alien and progressive that, yeah, and so this album begins with a 21st century schizoid man, which is some noise that's really obscure and hard to figure out, and then this gigantic rock riff and then a jazz piece that comes out of nowhere. And all of it works. All of it is just, is compelling and fresh and Amazing live even kind of holds up on an album and sounds like sounds really not like nothing quite that had been written in in Britain or anywhere else at the time
3: That
1: Netflix show f f is her family has created a whole band with its own mythology aping this because once you hear, These uh, lyrics about chains of prison moons and stuff. You don't know what he's talking about, but you know you're being transported into something else. Uh, And he's kind of lyricist and light show coordinator for this band that is kind of recognizably heavy metal in some ways, uh, but then playing uh, Bolero live and playing Holst's Mars theme, just the... Finding these extremely concussive things that they can really work out for for minutes, and minutes at a time, and also kind of flo- floating them all over a mellotron, which is not the most uh, hardcore of instruments. So you have this this conflagration of extremely heavy guitar and then an extremely heavy bass and drums, but then a flute. <laughs> a lot of the songs, uh, really weird mystical lyrics, and a, and a mellotron, uh, and that it, it really takes takes people by storm. It, it defines to a big extent. What progressive rock sounds like, and I, I kind of co- quote some of the advertising and the reviews in the book. Like even, I uh, reviews at the time were very positive about this music. And only, but it only was ten years later where people retconned and said they always hated it. Uh, but this was, you know, people like P- Peter Townsend were lifting this band up as this obvious. Well, we were doing interesting things, but my God, look at what they're doing.
3: It's it's pleasurable how non that's so how alt it is basically i yeah. mean to borrow a term from the 90s but it but i did one thing i was curious about is sort of the how you square the huge popularity of these bands in the united states during their heyday and the like deep aggressive kind of nerdy counter popness of them like it's not i love you you love me etc it's not the romance of the bad boy in the leather jacket who you know with his just naturalistic swagger and plucking on a few guitar strings with you know whatever he learned on the back of a train uh (laughs) is gonna you know make you move and melt uh how, how like how do the nerdiness and the and the massive audiences square?
1: Well, it, it's nerdy, but it also is at its core often you know four to six dudes with long hair uh, and groupies playing playing rock music. <laughs> I mean, I think it diverges a little bit from glam rock. At the same time, is a lot more transgressive when it comes to to gender and sexuality, and it's it's on one hand more hard rocking, but a l- little more challenging of your, of your, your worldview as pro- progressive rock it really does f- feed on what you liked already and then add to it this kind of musical chops and intensity and it just i've always found people who really bang their head along with musical chops tend to be dudes who are not necessarily all nerds right it is it is a uh, a pastime and a something to hold your lighter up or or high five people listening to that uh, it, it was then carried on by hair metal bands, right? Which were much more obviously, uh, obviously I was about to say dick swinging,
0: but probably can't say that. <laughs> you can <laughs> yeah. definitely say that. if you I want. can say dick swinging. <laughs> mm. All right. Well, um, Dave, do you want to pick a track for us to go out on? I'd, I'd end up with a uh,
1: King Crimson's discipline. So if I can use two, but this is an example of just how the music transformed too. It is. I, I really tried to <laughs> rescue it from this imagery of, elves and whatnot. When King Crimson return uh, in the 1980s, they break up, they come back. Uh, song like Discipline with all these interlocking guitars, I think, just demonstrates how much they sh- these guys should get credit for doing new things in music. And uh, that that's a good example. It's a fully instrumental song with guitars running at different speeds, percussion that is wonderfully hard to follow, and a bass that's doing something else entirely, and it all works. And so
0: like that, that's the kind of music I came to, to love and what maybe want to write the book. All right, well, the book is The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prog Rock. It's by David Weigel. Dave, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I should say that Dave has made a uh, Spotify playlist of his favorite Prague Rock cuts, and we'll have a link to it on our show page. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dayna. What do you have?
4: Steve, I have a very simple Zen endorsement this week. As as you scroll through your news feed and get exhausted and depressed and demoralized by the day's news, I feel like everybody needs breaks, sometimes visual audio kinds of breaks and some sort of window open that is restful. And to that end this week, I'm endorsing Explore.org. Do either of you know this, this site, Explore.org, with the live cams? No. no. So I'm looking at it right now, and it's this wonderfully simple, I hope they never make the interface more fancy than it is now, is a big uh, page of thumbnails of live cams of animals all over the world. And, uh, and so you can watch owl nests In I don't even know where the owl nest is, but I was watching it for a while. You can have Steve's life and watch sheep in upstate New York, or you can go to Africa and watch wild safari-type animals roaming the plains. And often you'll just see the plains themselves and hear the sounds of birds. But you see whatever is happening in front of that stationary camera in that part of the world. Are you looking at it right now, Julia? There is a bear straight up like catching spawning salmon
3: in a waterfall. (laughs) Yeah, I'm watching the same thing.
4: Yep. So they're they're... like leaping. (laughs) <laughs> We're watching the same bear. So yeah, they'll generally feature one when you go there. There's a big window where they'll they'll rotate different animal cams and then you can also scroll down below and pick the animal cam of your choice. You can have the audio up or down. And what I like to do is just find one of these in the morning that has sort of a nice peaceful bird song background. And leave it open all day, and half the time you, you're not even looking at the animal, you're doing your work, but you can always peek over at your bear or your owl or your zebra and see how they're doing. So explore.org, it's uh, simple, it's beautiful, it's a it's a break from the horror.
0: Fantastic. Julia, what do you have?
4: I have a sad endorsement today.
3: Uh, I would like to endorse the work of illustrator Jill McElmurray. She did beautiful illustrations for the Little Blue Truck series, which also has further titles, as such series do. Little Blue Truck Leads the Way, Little Blue Truck's Christmas, Little Blue Truck's Halloween. Uh, Jill, in addition to being a wonderful illustrator, was also a listener to this podcast and a sometime member of our Facebook community and someone who I came to know a little bit as an online personage through that community. And she passed away last week. Uh, And she's one of those people in sort of a modern way that you can feel that you know a little bit. And so I just want to express my admiration for her work and send my love to her family and community who I don't actually know at all. Um, And just say that uh, we will miss her here too.
4: Here, here. Jill McMurray was a wonderful artist and she left the world way too soon. I was incredibly sad to learn of her death last week. And I do know her slightly. She's been a listener to this podcast forever and a reader of Slate forever. She wrote and illustrated several of her own children's books as well. And one that is a big favorite in our household is called I'm Not a Baby. The illustrations are just so virtuosically beautiful and the text is very funny. So that's another recommend from me.
0: I, this week, am going to endorse uh, the piano playing of McCoy Tyner, who's probably best known for uh, playing with John Coltrane, and it's forgotten, I think, a little too easily that he had this long, tremendous solo career, and uh, I was reminded of it when, on a Pandora station, the most beautiful piano jazz ballad I think I've ever heard came on. I was like, who is that? just the playing the touch the tenderness of it was so amazing and it turned out it was McCoy Tyner was playing a tune called When Sunny Gets Blue off of the record Today and Tomorrow from 1964 he uh, McCoy Tyner is wonderful um, The Real McCoy is an amazing album it turns out Today and Tomorrow is a great record um, but if you need a way in that's your way When Sunny Gets Blue check it out you will not be disappointed alright Dana thank you so much thanks Steve thanks Julia thank you You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Networks. The Culture Gap Fest is part of that network. You can check out the entire roster of shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Thank you.